This is the Education Gadfly Show. That's a clap. It's a different thing. It's a different problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's their worst nightmare. <laughs> what does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. You're the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please join me in welcoming my special guest for this week, Robin Lake. Robin, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Michael. It's so nice to be here. It is great to have you. And Robin says she's there with her dog. Of course, we're all doing this from home. And so if you hear a squeaky toy, it's Robin's dog, not Robin. So now we know. <laughs> also joining us with or without a dog, I'm not sure, but certainly with a baby, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Yep. Lots of squeaking going on at this end too. <laughs> yeah. I can only imagine this has been a challenging time for so many people. Certainly, we think about those healthcare workers and others on the front lines, but I got to say, people with babies and other small children in the home, whew, I feel for you. I'm feeling for you, David. You, you guys surviving? We're doing fine. There's a silver lining to every cloud, and I'm getting a lot of quality time. Yeah. And Robin, quality time with teenagers. Huh? <laughs> oh, my God. Hey, that's a cloud. It's a different thing. It's a different problem. <laughs> it's their worst nightmare. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Good. Uh, they will look back on it fondly, I'm sure. The pandemic of 2020, which of course is what we're going to talk about on this week's Ed Reform Update. So let's get to it. So Robin, you and your colleagues at the Center for the Reinvention of Public Education, Center for Reinventing Public Education. There you go. Okay. But you all have just jumped into action so fast on this, in part, I imagine, because Seattle was the first metro area to get hit hard, and that's where you all are based. And you very quickly set up this fantastic database, looking at what some early districts are doing to try to cope and try to make this switch to distance learning, to remote learning. So let's talk about that. We'll set aside for now this question about sort of what the heck is going to happen next school year or how this is going to change American education over the long term or even the recession that we are now in. But just let's focus on the here and now. What are you seeing out there from districts in terms of dealing with this crisis? Are there some early lessons? And for those of us, both sort of parents and policy wonks, what is reasonable to expect over the next three months? I see some stuff in the press about districts being annoyed that affluent parents expected these virtual schools to be up and running yesterday. Okay, guilty as charged. But you tell us. So let's start with this. What are you seeing out there that looks promising? Well, look, I think you're right. We've been in this for about three or four weeks now. And so started to see districts responding in different ways early on. And I think this the same kind of variation that we've seen in Washington state is happening across the country. There are some districts that were really well positioned to jump. And that was either because they had a lot of technology access already. Most of their kids had devices. Most of their homes had Wi-Fi access. And then some that really had no plan at all and had been kind of paralyzed by how to move forward. Interestingly, there were a lot of districts that had emergency response plans in Florida combined with a lot of digital access that moved pretty quickly. So it's been kind of all over the map. And as you know, Mike, one of the kind of central issues that folks are grappling with are equity questions and where the federal government is, where states are, on the rules for moving forward. So I would say if we step back, an early snapshot is there were a few front runners who jumped. 
most of the rest of the field has been moving pretty slowly, but I do think that's about to change. I think we'll see a lot of new plans next week and the week after. And our database is really designed to just inform the field as folks are going and trying. This is unprecedented territory. We don't know what the right way is, so we're just trying to inform folks. And it's interesting that those places like in Florida that are used to having to deal with natural disasters, in the case hurricanes, that often can wipe out schooling at the beginning of the school year. And so they've had to think about this versus much of the rest of the country. This is something brand new, you know, perhaps because I've got younger kids, including one in elementary school, I think about how this plays out differently for high school versus elementary versus middle. It does seem like it's easier to think about how it can work for older kids. If teachers can email them, they can read, <laughs> they can keep working on assignments at home in many cases. For little kids who are not going to be as ability to have it as much operate independently, smallest kids can't read yet, really thinking about what the heck districts, schools, teachers can do for those kids over the next three months without being with them face-to-face, especially without being able to assume that they all can get on a device and have the internet access or much of it is tough. We hear about people trying to get packets out, written packets, worksheets and things that kids can be working on. Where should we set our expectations, Robin? You're right. The little kids are a different challenge. And for them, there's certainly an important academic aspect to schooling, but also an important social aspect to schooling and just learning how to play effectively and all that. So it's a different challenge, but we've seen districts trying to attack that challenge by more intensive supports for families around the kinds of activities they could be doing at home with their kids. Some of the big districts have done televised educational programming, and I know you suggested through a good list of things that are good educational things to watch for kids, but you don't want them sitting in front of a TV all day, right? So unfortunately, I think the onus will be more on families with the smaller kids, but I think the expectation still ought to be, as soon as we can get there, that teachers who know the kid, (laughs) were working with the kid a month ago, and know where the child was in terms of their academic growth and socialization needs Mm -hmm. can work in partnership with families to craft something that's uniquely designed for that child. That's what I think this whole thing is exposing for me, the fact that the need for individualization was always there. Now it's just on hyper need. My feeling is that educators still have important expertise to bring to the table here. And we just have to get creative in how we figure out how to leverage that. Interesting, in the very early days, Success Academy got its program up and running. And one of the most impressive parts about it to me was the the main thing they were going to have elementary school teachers do, the main way they were going to have them spend their time was calling families twice a day. Maybe twice a day is more than you need. But this notion that, okay, what could an elementary school teacher be doing? In some places, they could be doing check-ins by Zoom with the whole class to kind of keep that routine going if there is internet access. But otherwise, yeah, they could be spending a lot of their time calling parents, checking in, asking how things are going, talking to the kids, and helping them think about activities that they could be doing, what, for at least an hour or two a day. Yeah. Well, Mike, that was, that was going to be my question. I noticed from the survey, Robin, that it sounds like zero districts are planning to do synchronous learning, right? And yet right now, the four of us are essentially doing synchronous learning. I'm not here to peddle any particular products, but the technology works remarkably well. You can mute people, so that problem is solved. You can raise your hand even. There's a function for that. 
there's obviously a technology access issue here, but is there any chance that we see actual synchronous learning where one teacher is Zooming or doing something else and 30 kids are watching along? Or is there just too high a chance that, I don't know, dad walks by in his underwear or something? Uh, are districts legally exposed for doing that? Is that the problem there? There are fears about legal issues like that, but I think there are always liability issues when an adult is engaging in teaching with students. I think there are ways to create observations and opportunities for making sure that things are legit. But, you know, my kids are engaging in synchronous learning. Now, they are high schoolers, but their school, it's a private school. They try to keep it really simple. They said, we're just going to adapt our lessons as if it were a business meeting. And so there are little breakout groups that kids go into for little discussions. They manage Socratic discussions as a group. My advice to districts has been, at the very least, don't overcomplicate this. What's most important for kids right now is reestablishing a sense of social connection because they're also isolated in their homes. And so if you can even get a Zoom connection going with your kids and just have classmates sharing pets and chatting with each other a lot, that is better than nothing. But then, yes, success has gotten pretty interesting in both the parent outreach, but also in using teachers really creatively. So one interesting thing that they've done, to your point, David, is they've gotten their most engaging teacher in the grade level to really do the kind of interactive work for kids, lessons that are really engaging and exciting. And then they're using their other teachers to do those check-ins and individualization on the side. So we have seen spots of creativity all around the country. And I think right now, our job as policy wants is to try to figure out how we can help lift up those stories. And our database is open source. So we invite folks to go in and find things that look interesting and just start talking about them, getting them out there. And as a researcher, I hope we'll bring data to that too. I have another question for both of you. Sorry, Mike, really quickly. I just want to know, so are kids actually going to get credit for this semester? I'm just trying to understand. I know there's seat time requirements, and are we going to run afoul of those? Does it count as seat time? Are they doomed to essentially repeat this semester or not? Yeah, it depends on where you look. My kids are, and that's why I worry about inequities here. There are a lot of school districts that are saying no grades this quarter. There are some states and districts that are saying Kids can take online classes, but they won't get credit for them. They take them. I think that's problematic. I think we really have an obligation to try to educate as many kids as quickly as we can without making major gaffes. So it's all over the place. There's some grading that's going on, but mostly not grading. We saw very few examples of districts that were monitoring whether kids were doing their work or not. Just a funny story quickly. A couple of our researchers went on one district's online class to see how it was. One of the largest districts in the country, when they got on, there were four people online. One of them was our researcher. So are kids attending the classes? Are they doing their work? Do we grade them for it? These are all questions folks are trying to work through right now. My sense is that we do see this transition right now, or it's coming soon, where we're going from the keep kids busy with enrichment stuff. You may be starting to, we're actually going to try to continue teaching. That's what we see in Montgomery County, Maryland, where my kids are starting later this week. They're going to try to finish up the third quarter. And to your question, David, I think for older kids, it does seem a little unfair not to give them credit, especially if they are halfway through the semester already. The thing I worry about with younger kids maybe we can talk about in a future podcast is just moving them 
ahead, whether they're ready or not. We've got so many elementary school kids, really most, a lot of kids who are already working below grade level. Now we're taking away a third of the school year, so just pushing them ahead. The impulse may be, well, we don't want to punish them in some way, but I don't think that's actually helping them to now turn them into fourth graders when they are currently third graders and working at a first grade level. All right, but we need to leave it there so much. So we're, we will continue to follow this as it unfolds. Robin, thank you for the great work that you and your colleagues are doing there to help us track what districts are doing. People can check it out at your website, right? CRPE.org. Yep, CRPE.org. CRPE.org. All right, very good. Yeah. Thanks so much, Robin. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank for you. Everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. So, Amber, I'm curious about your own teaching experience right now. As I recall, you are a Sunday school teacher. Are you able to keep that going virtually right now? No, we're not doing that. I mean, the main church is doing online church, but not doing the yeah. Sunday stuff. So, gotcha. anyhow, yeah, that's, gotcha. that's bummer. You know, my older son, 12-year-old, they're still doing their youth group, which has been pretty cool. It's it's really fascinating. Of course, we're so focused on how schools are trying to cope with yeah. moving online. But, you know, some of these other extracurriculars and social service stuff, they're trying to figure this out as well. He's uh, yeah. He's got dry land practices through his swim team. And I wow. hear that uh, some, some debate clubs have gone online. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's been interesting stuff with musical groups trying to do it over Zoom. So, oh. uh, fascinating. A lot of ingenuity out there. Yes, uh, absolutely. I like it. Far and wide. All right, Amber. So what you got for us this week? We have the latest Teach for America evaluation. Mathematica does these every so often. And they've got the latest installment in the Ed Finance and Policy Journal conducted by Mathematica and Westat, these sort of big contractors. It evaluates whether TFA is still improving uh, student achievement after it's scaled up under a five-year federal I-3 grant. So I got one of those huge grants a few years ago, um, and they were explicitly sort of charged with increasing the size of the TFA teacher core by more than 80% over four years. Pretty big goal. A little bit of background first before we dive into the findings. I think most of our listeners are probably aware that there have been a lot of positive effects out of these TFA evaluations over the years. But what's different about this one is, again, we don't have a ton of evaluations done since the scale-up. And TFA has implemented a bunch of changes in recent years. They've expanded recruitment to less competitive colleges, for instance, because they're trying to meet this growing recruitment need. They've expanded recruitment to historically black colleges and universities as well to increase their the diversity of their applicant pool. And all the while, they're not reducing or modifying their standards. They're still looking for applicants, for instance, with really high GPAs and leadership experience. So in 2010, they launched this major expansion after receiving this I-3 grant. And then analysts come in and recruit 36 schools from 10 states. They focus the study on teachers in pre-K through five only which is also a little different than the prior evaluations, which looked at older grades. Students in the same school and and grade level were randomly assigned to a class taught by a TFA teacher or a class taught by a teacher certified from another route. So the counterfactual, in essence, represents the group of teachers who would have taught the kids had the schools not hired TFA. Specifically, they conduct the evaluation during the first two years of the scale-up. The final sample includes 13 districts, 11 traditional districts, one charter school district, and one community-based organization. By the way, they use the Woodcock-Johnson for pre-K to 2 because I know we don't test kids, you know, using standardized tests in that early of grade. So, all right, descriptively, the findings. 
For the first years of the scale-up, TFA expanded the number of first and second year core members by 25%, and there was a six percentage point decrease in the proportion of core members from more selective institutions. They scaled up, and they did what they said they were going to do by casting a broader net. Just descriptively, TFA teachers also had less experience, which is not surprising, although 76% were still from selective colleges compared to 40% of the comparison group, despite this new thing to recruit from less selective colleges. All right, impact. Basically, the, the headline is that they, on average, teachers were similarly effective across both groups in both reading and math, yet when they digged into the differences by grade level, that's where they saw some things pop. In the upper elementary grades, that's grades three through five, TFA were neither more or less effective than the comparison group, so sort of a wash there. But when you got to the lower elementary grades, pre-K through two, the TFA teachers had larger positive effects in both reading and math. And in reading, just to quantify that a little bit, the pre-K through two TFA teachers had an impact of 0.12 standard deviation, which is equivalent to moving from about the 40th percentile of student achievement to the 45th percentile. And in math, students assigned to TFA teachers in grades one and two outscored their peers assigned to comparison teachers by about 0.16 standard deviation. So that's kind of the big takeaway. I mean, I think in short, the bottom line is that they're still, despite this big expansion, they've still been able to provide effective teachers to disadvantaged kids at scale, but particularly in these lower elementary grades pre-K through two. Wow. And remind us again, Amber, the comparison group. These are other new teachers or all teachers? They're all teachers. So they could cover, they could be new, they could be veteran. They kind of cover the gamut in terms of characteristics. That's amazing then, right? I mean, the the fact that you could have a new Teach for America teacher, Mm -hmm. you know, most new teachers just are not as effective as they're going to be a few years later, but that those teachers are just as effective as a veteran teacher on average for the upper grades and more effective than the early grades. That's incredible. Did they discuss that at all? Like, so for example, do we know much about what TFA is doing in terms of teaching their teachers how to teach reading? Has that been improved? There's not a lot of information about that. They did make the point that the TFA teachers were also less likely to have an elementary education degree and certification. So I'm like, okay. (laughs) And I, I think they're still, their motto is still that five week intensive you know, preparation. Can I jump in here, gang? Yes. I, I thought you were going to bring this up. I don't want to get out over my skis, right? But I feel like the difference between K through two and grades three through five is suggestive because TFA teachers, right, they're randomly assigned, but the comparison group is not randomly assigned. And I don't know. I just, I wonder if we have quantified here, more or less, the, the learning penalty associated with moving sort of less strong teachers to grades K through two. You know, if the, if the comparison group is weaker in those grades, um, and I, I realize it's different assessments, right? Um, But, you know, I mean, it could be, right, that what we're really picking up here is sort of the accountability counterfactuals. Same word. It could be. Right. So that that there's this concern that with standardized high stakes testing starting in third grade, elementary school principals have an incentive to move their weaker teachers to the earlier untested grades, even though that would be really stupid. (laughs) Um, But that's no, it's it's true. It's it's possible. Yeah. Uh, but look, you know, there's always been. I feel like way back when in the '90s, when we would debate Teach for America and other alternate route programs, the assumption was always that it would be particularly effective for high school kids. When mm-hmm. uh, there was already some evidence that you know subject matter knowledge in the older grades mattered for say math and science, and so you can get these people from TFA that did not major in education but did major in those uh, 
academic subjects, and maybe they, there wasn't as much to teach them about how to teach those classes because we don't know much. Versus elementary, where there's quite a bit we know about how to teach, especially reading. So I don't know. It, I just think it's, it's, it, it implies to me that Teach for America is doing something right. Not only do they have young people who are them just super smart, but that mm-hmm. they also must be teaching them some good core skills when it comes to teaching reading. You know, and I think they're also, as far as I know, teaching things like Doug Lamov's Teach Like a Champion and very concrete ways to help. It just makes me think that maybe the ed schools should be looking at what Teach for America is doing and see if they should copy it. Yeah. I mean, and this study obviously didn't get in the black box of, of what they're teaching. But yeah, I've read some of those more qualitative pieces, too, that Mathematic has done in the past. And I think there's some evidence for that, uh, for that, Mike, in terms of just quantifying exactly, you know, what they're doing and uh, more intensively and, and that sort of thing. So, but this study didn't get into that. But I think that's yep. a fine hypothesis. All right. As is David's. <laughs> David's is as well. <laughs> That's okay. That's as turn. well. All right. Very good. Well, look, uh, still encouraging and encouraging that they scaled up. You know, they also became much more diverse in terms of the teaching core, you know, and, and they've done all of that and they've still been able to get very strong results. So way to go, Teach for America. Woo-hoo. How many te- how many teachers are we talking about again now, Amber? They were trying to get 80% more over 40 years. This was only on the, you know, the first two years of the scale up. Okay. But Annie- Totally. I mean, they, they said that it doesn't look like they met their ultimate goal. Uh, it looks mm-hmm. like they have such an ambitious goal that ultimately they didn't meet the goals they had set out in the I-3 grant by the end of the four years. But this study was just looking at the first two. And, and during those two years, they did meet their incremental goal of expansion. So, All right. All right. Ooh. Good. We will yeah. leave it there. Thank you, Amber. Good stuff. We like good news. We need good news right now. Uh, for sure. All right. That is all the time we've got for this week. Until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.